0: Welcome to another episode of the Western Lit Podcast. This is your host, Robbie of the One Name. Hey, welcome to the podcast for today. Um, This is the book we've been looking for all semester, and the teacher we've been hunting for all semester, C.S. Lewis, is finally here. And so instead of starting with a devotional from C.S. Lewis, I start with a devotional from Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, this is a book about love, just like the last book, right? Beloved. This one's a book about love. Lewis also wrote a book called The Four Loves, which uh, isn't a novel, but it parallels this book works out in novelistic form uh, some of his ideas that are presented in that short book called The Four Loves, where he works with the four main Greek terms of, of love, and especially uh, a concept he, he talks about called need love. You will see it here on display in Until We Have Faces. And by the way, there's a project right there. If somebody wants it, uh, take a look at the Four Loves, um, and look at uh, C.S. Lewis's novel and how it how it uh, functions, uh, that way. So here is a here is a part of First Corinthians thirteen verses eleven and twelve, uh, you know this chapter, uh, where Paul, uh, in sort of an exalted state, uh, resorts to poetry, um. Paul, who's often all preachy talk, can't help himself, and he slips into poetry. He says this, When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only in a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. I've said all God's people out there in podcast land. Till we have faces is the name of the novel. What does it mean? What is a face? And then we shall see face to face. And what is a face? Right. What is a face? Think about that, um, and think about that as we we uh, go through the novel. The novel is called Till We Have Faces. What What are you waiting for? If you're waiting until you have a face, what is a face? Well, think about think about this. Consider con, consider that many, many stories are about um, a deepened sense of self-identity for the main protagonist in the story. Our main protagonist here needs uh, to understand her own identity, who she is. I like to begin um, every class with the first passages of the story, to jump right in and to read the first paragraph or paragraphs, and we did that, I think, with every book. Maybe we didn't do that with Beloved, and we would have done that in class if I if I didn't do that on the podcast. I don't think I did, um, but we would have done that in class, and we're going to do that here. Um, but first, let me give you a quick overview of what you read for today. This is just a brief summary, um, and in summary form, this is what happened. So. Chapter one, we get the childhood of Oriol and Redival. Their hair is cut off when their mother dies. The fox is put in charge of them. The king takes a second wife. He's hoping for a son. Oriol and Redival sing and attend their stepmother on her wedding night. In chapter two, the king's anger when the child is another girl. There's a dispute between the king and the priest of Unget. The fox becomes the king's scribe and counselor. Psyche the unwanted girl grows more and more beautiful and beloved by Oriol. A lot of time passes in Chapter 2. More, more and more beloved by Oriol and the fox. Oriol takes Psyche away from the wet nurse to whom Bada had given her. Redival grows... Mm, oh, how do we say this? Wanton? She grows... Uh, she becomes uh, kind of flirtatious, whatever. She's caught with Terran who is castrated, made a eunuch. Redival becomes spiteful towards Psyche and she mocks her as a goddess. The people begin to venerate Psyche, asking her to touch babies to make them beautiful. Redival threatens to tell the priest of Unget about this. will buys her off with a necklace. There's rebellion and pestilence, a plague on the land, a fever, right? Psyche is clamored for and the king's consent goes among the people She goes among the people, at the king's consent, she goes among the people and she touches all the sick ones. Redival conspires against her with the priest of Ungat. In chapter five, oh sorry, in chapter four, the pestilence, the drought, the famine, the rebellion in the land continues. Psyche is now called, though, the accursed by the people because she's apparently made herself into a goddess and the concern is that she spread the virus. The, the palace is virtually under siege. The priest of Unget comes to the palace and tells the king that the great sacrifice in order to end the pestilence uh, in the land, the great sacrifice to the shadow brute must be made. The king fears that he's going to have to be the one to be the sacrifice. And he calls on Bardia to drive away the priest guards. He threatens the priest himself and is rev- rev- uh, he's, he's vastly relieved when he learns that the lots have designated Psyche, his daughter, not himself. He feigns grief, acts like he's really sad. So that's sort of where, we, where you went through in the first uh, five chapters. That first five chapters is quite an opening, right? Um, and I hope you've enjoyed reading it. It's pretty easy to, to follow and read. Where. Where he, he the, the novel is called Tilia Faces a Myth Retold the myth that's being retold, and he plays loose with this myth. Of course, he's he's really replaying it, but the, the central features of it are are still um, there as you will see later on. But it's the myth of Cupid and Psyche, and he's reprinted a summary of this at the at the end of the novel. I don't necessarily recommend you go and read that. It's not essential right now. Later on, when you get further along in the novel, perhaps you will want to read. If you're not familiar with the myth of Cupid and Psyche, okay. So, C.S. Lewis, if you if you turn to the inside front cover, um, like I think the second page in, I'm flipping the pages. Maybe you even heard that. Um, you'll see a whole list of books by C.S. Lewis, and there's it's not a an, an, a complete list. There's thirty something books listed there, and if you read through some of those, you will see. Oh my goodness, there's a bunch of famous, fa- famous titles there from the Chronicles of Narnia to a, to a a whole series of other, other books that he has written. And it's not even an exhaustive list. Okay. View some, some inside jacket covers list. I don't know, 50, 60, some, some books. It's hard to even count, but there's, there's a lot. The guy wrote a lot of books. He's a giant uh, in terms of the Christian faith in the 20th century. C.S. Lewis said this, far and away, the best I have written. This is his comment on the novel Till We Have Faces. Far and away, the best I have written. So here's a guy who's probably the greatest Christian writer of the 20th century, saying, not just this is, I think this one's my best, but saying, not even close. Far and away, the best I have written. All right? And that's a really profound claim from an author to say this is this is my best and it's not even close this is a guy who had movies made out of uh his his some of his chronicles of narnia well multiple movies out of some of the chronicles of narnia and so on so um far and away the best i have written you know uh, mere christianity and miracles and the problem of pain and and Four Loves, and Screwtape Letters, and on and on, all these famous, famous, The Great Divorce, these famous, famous uh, works that he's written. Um, And then he says this, though, far and away the best I have written. Then he says, that book, Till We Have Faces, that book has been my one big failure with both the critics and with the public. That book... Has been my one big failure, with both the critics, and with the public. What? What? Why? Well, you might you might guess because it's so different from so much of so much of the other things he wrote. But the critics, if not the public, have been much kinder posthumously to this book. And many of the great C. S. Lewis critics, and believe it or not, there's a whole industry out there of people who are just critics. Uh, um, scholars of c.s lewis have come to agree if not far and away the best he's written the best he's written and that's where i i said having read a bunch of what he's written i would say i don't think he wrote a better book um i really don't think i don't think he wrote a better book would i say far and away i might even say far and away i think i think this one stands alone at the top of the best that c.s lewis has written so see what you think um, as you go along, I don't know how much C.S. Lewis you've read, but anyway, here you go, C.S. Lewis. Um, I often like to begin class, as I said, by reading the first paragraph. And I want you to think as you follow along here with all that's revealed in the opening paragraph of this novel. So here we go. I am old now. And have not much to fear from the anger of gods. I have no husband nor child nor hardly a friend through whom they can hurt me. My body, this lean carrion that still has to be washed and fed and have clothes hung about it daily, with so many changes, they may kill as soon as they please. The succession is provided for. My crown passes to my nephew. What do we notice here in the first paragraph? What, 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 are we, what are we told? A whole bunch is revealed, especially when you go back and look at it from after reading five chapters. A whole bunch is revealed. So let's start right off the bat with the first sentence. The first word is I. Well, so what's revealed there? We're going to have a first-person narration. First-person narration first-person narrator. And we know who that is having read along. It's Oriol, but let's, let's learn some more about who this I is, okay? And by the way, whenever you have an I narrator, you should recognize that, okay, we have a limited kind of perspective. We don't have a godlike omniscient narrator giving us all the insights into all of the characters. What we have is perspectival. And biased probably. And perhaps we should question whether the, the, anytime we have an I narrator, how reliable that narrator's point of view is. But anyway, we have an I. Second, second word, I am. Present tense. Okay. Now I was, I, I am. And what is she now? I am old now. True or false? Oriol is an old queen that's often the first question i ask on the quiz for today for for the for the class and what is the answer the answer is true you should never forget that what you are reading is narrated by an old queen named oriole the story's narrator the story's central protagonist is an old woman looking back on her life she is old now how do we know she's a queen my crown, it says, passes to my nephew. Interesting. Uh, she has last sentence of this paragraph, she has a nephew, which means one of her sisters, unless she somewhere along the line has a brother, not, not likely, right? But she has a sister she has a sister who has had a child. One of those sisters that you know about has had a had, had a male, a son. And so um, the succession is provided for, it says in the success, second to last. Why is the succession being provided for? Because Oriol is old now and she's nearing death. They are, they have decided that um, the nephew of one of her, the, the son of one of her sisters, we, we don't know that who yet is provided for. Uh, he will be the, he will be the new king of Gloom. Oriol is, is, is queen You'll be the queen. We learn in the second sentence um, that she has no husband or child, so she is alone. She doesn't have any friends. She's alone. Um, we learn that uh, also in the first sentence she doesn't have anything to fear from the anger of gods. Right off the bat, where we learn there's gods. We learn that they can that they're fearful. We learn that. Um, uh, they get angry and that Oriole feels like I, they, they can't get at me because the only thing that they, the only way they could actually get at me would be through some loved one. And I don't have any children. I don't have any husband. I barely have any friends. So I don't have anything to fear from the gods anymore at this point in late in my life. She says, um, my body this lean carry on that still has to be washed and fed and have clothes hung about it daily with so many changes they may kill as soon as they please the gods can take my life how does a person feel about themselves when they refer to them their their body as lean carry on what is carry on carry on is dead meat um it's it's uh carcasses lying on the side of the road that crows come and peck at, carry on is dead meat. My body, this dead meat, I still take care of it, but they can, they can take my life. What does Ori feel? That, um, at this point in her life, she's, she seems like she's bitter, like she's angry at the gods and that she doesn't trust them to do good by her. And that, uh, they do get angry and she has nothing to fear anymore because they can't do anything to her. If They kill her big whoop. Um, she doesn't have anyone. She, she's near close enough to that. Uh, they can hurt her through. Okay. So lots revealed there. We, we have gods. We have an old queen, an old dying queen who is going to be succeeded by a nephew. Um, who doesn't think very highly of her own body. Now think about that, uh, right? Uh, my body, this lean character. What would you say about this character? Given what you know, having read later on, right? What's the one central fact about Oriol's Aur- physical appearance that is essential to the novel? Oriole is ugly, right? And it doesn't seem as if she has come to f- love herself, over the time that has passed from when she picks up the story a few paragraphs later, when she begins the story at a very uh, at her early in her life, up until now, really late in her life when she writes these first um, lines. So what, what should you remember? You should remember as you read along throughout the story, as you read the first five chapters, that this story is being narrated by an old queen who is nearing death, who's got no one, she has no husband, she has no child, she has, has no, um, she has no, no, no reason to fear, fear for, uh, herself. Um, she doesn't think very highly of her own, own body, her own self. Um, and, uh, yeah, so let's read the second, second paragraph here. Being for all these reasons free from fear, I will write in this book what no one who has happiness would dare to write. I will accuse the gods, especially the God who lives on the gray mountain. That is, I will tell all he has done to me from the very beginning, as if I were making my complaint before him as a judge. But there is no judge between gods and men, and the God of the mountain will not answer me. Terrors and plagues... Our terrors and plagues are no, no, not an answer. I write in Greek as my old master taught it to me. It may someday happen that a traveler from the Greek lands will again lodge in this palace and read the book. Then he will talk of it among Greeks, where there is great freedom of speech even about the gods themselves. Perhaps their wise men will know whether my complaint is right or whether the god could have defended himself if he had made an answer. Alright, so here is the second paragraph, and what do we notice right off the bat? I am free from fear, she says, and I am going to write a book. So we get the origin of the book we are holding in our hands, told to us in the first two paragraphs. Oriol, an old queen, nearing death, unafraid of these gods who apparently have done something she's very bitter towards, who, who, who apparently done some serious damage to her happiness in life. She says, I'm going to write a book that makes a complaint about the gods. And I'm going to write in Greek, hoping that somebody where there's great freedom of speech, somebody from the Greek lands may come along and read this. And then they can make a judge about my complaint and decide if I really had a legitimate complaint about the gods. Okay. Who does she complain about, especially? She complains about the god of the gray mountain. Now, who is the god of the gray mountain? we know, we learn later on, um, who this god of the gray mountain is. This god of the gray mountain is the son of unget okay? Ungit is a, a god who's worshipped in Gloom, a female goddess who's wor- worshipped in Gloom, and, um, is, is, uh, the priest of unget is the one who makes the accusation that the shadow brutes in the land and they we must sacrifice someone for the accursed and draws lots okay so unget right that's unget unget has a son who lives up on the gray mountain apparently and the god he is the god of the gray mountain and she's going to accuse him of of what he has done to her now she says she's going to do this i'm not afraid i'm going to write because Anybody who has happiness would never do this, but since I obviously don't, I, I'll go ahead and write it anyway. Um, She's making this accusation. So never forget as you read along that what you are reading, what you are reading in this first 250 pages or nah, the first part one of this book, okay, which goes on to, I don't know, 200, 200 and 80 pages, maybe 290 pages, 200 and 300 and I don't know, 200 something pages. Anyway, part one of the book uh, is an old, nearly dying queen writing a complaint against the gods, especially the god of the gray mountain for what apparently he has done to her she is not happy she is not fearful she uh, knows that the future is taken care of for gloam she's queen an old dying queen writing a complaint against the gods never forget that as you read along it's easy to forget that because we jump back in time because in the next paragraph you notice the shift in tense right next paragraph i was oriole I am old now is how it begins. I was Oriol, the eldest daughter of Trom. Okay, so she's not saying that I, I'm no longer Oriol. Her name is still Oriol. and she's an old woman. She's the queen Oriol. Now she, she, she was the eldest daughter of Trom, king of Gloam, And we meet that character, right, early in this story. And Trom is not going to win any prizes for father of the year award. Um and he's the king and anyway you, you need to uh, beat that dead but i want to read some things in this second paragraph just to to, to highlight them to you i was oriel the eldest god of Trom, king of Gloam. the city of gloom stands on the left hand of the river Shenet. to a traveler who is coming up from the southeast not more than a day's journey above ringle which is the last town southward that belongs to the land of Gloam these are all fictional places okay none of these are you, you wouldn't find them on any map they're somewhere on the outskirts of the greek lands in the in barbarian territory and for the greeks for the ancient greeks everything that was outside of greece was where the barbarians lived okay so anyway that's that's and she recognizes it the city is built about as far back from the river as a woman can walk in a third of an hour for the Shannon, overflows her banks in the spring in summer there is there was then dry mud on each side of it and reeds and plenty of waterfall about as far beyond the ford of the shenet is our city as our city is on the side of it you come to the holy house of unget this is the part i want to point out and beyond the house of unget going all the time east and north you come quickly to the foothills of the gray mountain the god of the gray mountain who hates me is the son of unget but unget sits there alone so we have in the house of unget unget goddess unget you know just across the river right where from from gloom there's the house of unget right and then up on the gray mountain apparently is the son of Ungit. okay he does not however live in the house of Ungit, but unget sits there alone in the furthest recesses of her house where she sits it is so dark that you cannot see her well but in summer enough light comes down from the smoke holes in the roof to show her a little. She is a black stone without head or hands or face and a very strong goddess. My old master, whom we called the fox, said she was the same whom the Greeks called Aphrodite. But I write all the names of people and places in our own language. The fox, Greek fox, um, draws a parallel between unget and says, this is who we call Aphrodite, Aphrodite goddess of love, but Aphrodite is a beautiful goddess, here we get the sense that the, the statue of unget is in no, no sense, uh, indicating beauty, but, but somehow Fox draws the parallel, parallel between her, so anyway, you get the picture of the pantheon of Gloam just a bit there, and, um, you have, uh, Ungat and Ungat's son up on the mountain, okay, and her complaint is against unget All right, so there you have it. It's kind of the introduction to the novel, and you wrote in your journal some quotes down, and you wrote some things about who Oriol is, and trying to get as many details as you can about the kind of person she is, and hopefully you identified Oriol is unloved by her father. She's the eldest daughter of Trom. She is motherless, she is ugly. She grows up very quickly um, in, in these young young uh, her younger days that she relates. But you hopefully got who is Oriole? you hopefully got that. she is an old queen narrating a complaint against the god. That's who she is. And who she was is a, a, a girl unloved by her father, ugly and basically because of that her father assumes unmarryable. Um, uh, it seems. And um, she's the older sister of Redival and the older half-sister of Psyche. Psyche, Istra, Princess Istra, comes along and Oriol comes to take charge of Istra, like takes her from the wet nurse who, she's, she, who and, and, and starts caring for her as a mother. Psyche comes to call, Istra comes to call Oriol Maya, which means mother. All right, so... Um, there are a number of important passages that you may have written down that you think um capture Aurelia's uh, love for Psyche. Here's one from page 26. Um and a whole lot of time is passing very quickly in the, in the story, but there's 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 a moment as she's she's witnessing Psyche grow up and Psyche is so stunningly beautiful and so delightful, so lovable. Aurelia just Oriole, motherless, ugly Oriole, finds such deep satisfaction and pleasure with providing Psyche the kind of motherly affection that she herself never had. And since they have no father and she has no fatherly affection, providing all of that she had, it's almost as if you have this second kind of family Fox as sort of father figure to Oriole and then also to Psyche, but then Oriole as mother, Maya to Istra, to Psyche. All right, and uh, pushed to the the margins, of course, then is Redival, and you can kind of see what happens as a result of that. Redival goes and tattles, and it causes all kinds of problems, uh, of course, uh, leading to Psyche having to be declared as the accursed. Okay, so here's a passage on page 26. Many of you would have probably cited this. Oriol says, I wanted to be a wife so that I could have been her real mother. I wanted to be a boy so that she could be in love with me. I wanted her to be my full sister instead of my half-sister. I wanted her to be a slave so that I could set her free and make her rich. This is a powerful love. will loves her sister like, like fiercely and intensely. She absolutely adores her and she wants to care for her and take care of her. And she doesn't know precisely what to do with this love and she confesses here that um, uh, of course she wanted to be a wife so she could be her real mother. She was her Maya. Um, Being a a, a wife is probably no option for Oriol, given that she's terribly ugly. And uh, her father will not arrange for a marriage with her. She's not a bargaining chip in the patriarchal society here. Who would want her? Um... Is is sort of the assumption, and Oriole kind of knows that, and she so she wants she wished she could she could be a wife so that it, that she could have a child and care for it like, but she's 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 not going to get it. I wanted to be a boy so that she could be in love with me. Notice there, um, uh, I want to be something that I'm not, and not so that uh, I could love her like that, but so that she would be in love with me in that way, so that I could feel that that what it what it feels like to be loved that way i wanted her to be my full sister instead of my half sister i mean you know there's just want more of a of of a i mean it's how could we be separated even by that half thing i wanted her to be a slave so that i could set her free and make her rich what a move there i wanted her to be a slave and then she would i would be her hero by setting her free and showering her with gifts and making her rich All of those things reveal something about Oriole's love, and they're subtle, but they're really interesting. Oriole, deeply wounded Oriole, psychologically wounded Oriole, motherless, abusive father, ugly, um, finds someone to care for and love, and she needs. She needs the love of psyche, the love of the fox, but she needs the love of psyche, and she needs her love for psyche to find purpose in her life. And that's wonderful and dangerous. And Lewis will explore that in the novel. And you remember the key word at the in, in, in uh, beloved as mine, mine. My, the possessive, one of the problems of Oriol's love that you are seeing already is how possessive, how possessive it is. Um, and it's one of the things that Lewis will meditate on in this novel, is the danger of our natural loves. Natural affection are powerful, strong. A mother's love for a child is real, it's one of the fiercest and greatest loves that, that, that that there is. And natural, that natural affection that, that mothers have for children and oil has a kind of motherly instinct for her younger half sister. When she sees her vulnerable and she cares for her and raises her and loves her. And she's so amazingly great about it, but it's also there's remember what, uh, Tony Morrison said, mother love can be a killer. Um, left to itself left to itself and elevated to the status of god in your life it becomes an idol and that idol turns into a demon and so even the best of things natural mm-hmm. affection mother love right can be can become an idol and a demon in our lives so there you go um that's uh, the first part of, of till we have faces this is a delightful story carry on reading anybody can pick up the story and read it well um, it, we're not we're not doing quantum physics here um, it, it's uh, most people who have read till we have faces and loved it did not encounter it in a classroom So you know the best thing you are doing right now is sitting with your feet propped up in the sunshine. Uh, In the afternoon on your front porch or in your back deck or wherever it is you are and reading a really great book. And I end by offering you this teacher, you know, the best teacher we have in this class, C.S. Lewis. So that's all I have to say for today. Um, Do uh, take the one question quiz on on Canvas after you listen to this podcast. This is me again signing off. This has been another episode of the Western Lake Podcast brought to you by yours truly, Robbie of the One Name.